Hello and welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Tony. And I'm Patrick. And we have reached the last chapter in our book that we're working our way through, Against All Opposition by Greg Bonson. Uh, Bonson now is going to look at, uh, apply his particular methodology, how he has been uh, critiquing in the last couple of chapters here, various worldviews. He's going to apply that to religious worldviews, and specifically, he says, biblical counterfeit religions. So we'll see how he works through this. He'll, he'll give us uh, a couple of these uh, religious worldviews and suggest how they can be critiqued. Uh, and, um, and so this is the last chapter here. And so let's kind of begin. He says, we, we said that there are only three basic non-Christian worldviews, right? There are worldviews that, are, uh, that amount to materialistic atheism. Uh, and of course, we did an internal critique of them, uh, dealing with the philosophical issues of induction and deduction, mind, freedom, and moral absolutes. And of course, we'll recall how he went through those uh, in the uh, previous uh, 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 videos. Then he says there are also worldviews that are dualistic. So we have materialistic, right, atheism, and then we have dualistic worldviews. Uh, and these worldviews believe that there is mind and body, so not just a physical universe. So this is a kind of a different kind of metaphysical position that allows for physicality, but also for ideas and concepts and uh uh, if you recall, we use Plato as an illustration of those particular worldviews. Mm -hmm. And he tells us that we found that the secular version of dualism won't fly because it has no way to relate mind and body, right? So it, it, it's better, one might suggest, because it allows for greater uh, uh, vision of reality. You get both not just the physical, but you get the physical and the non-physical of reality, but it doesn't give us a way, he tells us, to account for how the forms or ideas, for instance, in Plato and the physical world come into contact with one another. The secular dualist, he tells us, cannot relate these two realms except perhaps arbitrarily. Right. And so then we turn to the religious options, pointing out that they are to be treated the same way as any other worldview, uh, is to be treated, including our own. The fact that they are religious doesn't change the way you evaluate them. So again, uh, it's not that presupposition says, here's my holy book. Uh, it's it's the, the only thing that there is and uh, nothing else can convince me otherwise. And we're just uh, doomed to to uh, repeat our our trajectories uh, within, <laughs> within our worldviews. Uh, one of the great things that presuppositionalism does is say, can you account for accounting? So can you account for the things that give you the ability to know things? And so uh, for, for Christianity, we, we want to say yes. And uh, that's the that's the second part of the the, the our kind of uh, two step approach uh, where classicists have their own kind of two step approach. But it's to, to prove a, a, a form of uh, a deity and then to uh, overlay Jesus on top of it. Uh, we, we take a, a different approach, uh, kind of more of a top down approach and we say um uh you know he, he, here's here's my standard of of 
uh, uh, all, my ultimate standard. And fr from there, I can account for things like uh, uh, having a good uh, general understanding of ability to do science, logic, uh, objective morality, uh, memory. Uh, it can account for the mind. It's not just uh, the, the, uh, the only thing that's physical. And so we're going to treat uh, uh, all other religions as we would our own religion and do this internal critique to see if there's places where they're arbitrary or inconsistent. And those are the, mm -hmm. the two pillars that we uh, we've uh, kind of attacked uh, um, Hinduism and Buddhism, which are uh, obvious r religions. Uh, um, but uh, th those were good starting points for kind of leading us into um, these these uh, religious uh, um um, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So in the last chapter, we dealt with the religions of transcendent mysticism, such as Hinduism and religions of Im imminent moralism, such as Buddhism and Confucianism. Now, in this chapter, we'll address biblical counterfeits. The biblical counterfeit religions fall into three classifications, which we touched on briefly in the last episode. There are some that are polytheistic, some that are Unitarian, as in they reject the Trinity in one way or another. And then there are some that are pseudo messianic. So they, they want to appear Christian, which, of course, who doesn't want to appear Christian, uh, but for <laughs> in, in a negative light. Right, right. And There's so let's usually begin. Kool Aid attached to the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he wants to begin with those uh, traditions that are uh, polytheistic, right? Biblical counterfeits. And Mormonism is, the, is his uh, illustration here. He says the example of polytheistic biblical counterfeits that we're going to look at here, Mormonism is polytheistic, and it has been demonstrated beyond doubt. Mormons even believe that Mormons can become gods. So, you know, it is multi-polytheistic. So if you have a million or two million Mormons, all of them can become gods. You can have millions of gods. Right. Uh, sounds like a great old time, right? <laughs> Everybody is a god. Right. Uh, unless you're one of the women that becomes a god that has ch spirit children for all eternity, which uh, I'm, I'm sure all women appreciate continuously being pregnant uh, for, for all eternity. So clearly this is not a man-made religion whatsoever. <laughs> all right. So uh, in, in this section, it's titled As Far As It Is Translated Correctly. And so that, that's a big uh, uh, kind of a sticking point that if you go into um, Mormon apologetics uh, kind of of counter Mormon apologetics, more likely. Um, th this is kind of uh, one thing to, to really focus on uh, because this is kind of the dividing line uh, between uh, uh, real Christianity and Mormons. And, yeah, and so up, up until recently, uh, the, the, the Mormons would have said otherwise as well, uh, but it seems like they're more wanting to, to bridge that gap and be more inclusive in, in, their, in their recognition of who's uh, Christian. Yeah, so one of the couple of things we need to keep in mind, especially when we're looking at these various, uh, you know, uh, false Christianities, we might say, uh, what he calls, uh, you know, these kind of religions that uh, are counterfeit Christianities. What is their view of the scriptures and how do they deal with that? And then how, what's their view of Christ, right? So those are the two main issues when we're dealing with these kind of counterfeit uh, Christianities. Mm -hmm. And so the, the first issue he, he deals with here with regard to Mormonism is their view of the scriptures. Right? right. So by what authority do Muslims teach what they teach? Well, according to Article 8 of their Articles of Faith, uh, they, it reads that uh, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. 
that is Mormon doctrine. They use the King James version of of, uh, of the Bible, and they say uh, this is the word of God. Uh, you know, uh, unless if it uh, kind of goes against what we wanted to say, then we say that it's been mistranslated, and uh, we we can we can point to the. Uh, the the Bart Ehrman's uh, a point of view of there has been three hundred thousand changes to the just the New Testament alone. So how can you trust that? I thought he words? said four hundred. Yeah, yeah, I thought he said four hundred thousand. Five hundred. Let's give yeah. him a million at this point. <laughs> yeah, and and so we've we've covered that in uh, a few other books as as well as uh, 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 responding to that. Um, uh, Kostenberger's uh, book that we we went over um, does a really good job of of putting that into uh, correct perspective. All right, so Mormons, their theory of knowledge is based on God revealing himself to us and belief that he has revealed himself in the Bible, provided that the Bible is translated correctly. Revelation plays a big point in in, uh, the the formation of Mormonism, the the story of uh, Joseph Smith and um, his his accounting of of, uh, direct revelation from God. And so this should tell us something. This should tell us that the Mormon manner of translation is not objective, but it's something that can be publicly verified. For the Mormons, translation is really a form of further revelation. Yeah, so, you know, this is not something then in terms of how they do things, it can be uh, publicly verified. They kind of do it within their own kind of uh, little group, right? He says, true biblical translation work is done by a committee of scholars who check and recheck their work against their original languages. If the Mormon church gets to determine if the Bible is correctly, with scare quotes, right, <laughs> translated, uh, then the Mormon church can make it say whatever it wants it to say and conform it to a Mormon doctrine. So he says that the Mormons go into their you know, article to say, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. And now he now he he's asked us to notice something. He said, "Did you notice that it doesn't add as far as it's translated correctly?" They did when they looked at the Bible, mm-hmm. but now when they look at their own book, they don't ask that. They don't add as far as it's translated correctly. Right? And so he asked, "Why is that?" And he says, "Because according to the story, the translation of the Book of Mormon was inspired, and that puts the Book of Mormon ahead of the Bible. The Bible must be tested." Notice against the Book of Mormon. Right. And so the Book of Mormon takes priority over the Bible. Right. Uh, so if you've ever dealt with kind of King James only this is uh, a little bit on, on the, the spectrum of, of uh, what they claim as well. Um, uh, it, it's it's hard not going down this route because we can talk about how Joseph Smith plagiarized the the incorrect uh, translation of uh, some of Genesis one stuff uh, for his book uh, that uh, that shouldn't have been translated. It's only found in in the the version of the uh, uh, King James that he would have had access to. Uh, but uh, but uh, we won't go into all of that. But uh, yes. So so here we say then the Book of Mormon should be read. Uh, when people tell you they have a revelation for God, rather than debating the formalities of whether they do or they don't, sometimes it's helpful to just go ahead and look at what they claim to be the Word of God. If you read the Bible and compare it to the Book of Mormon, it's clear what they claim is not a revelation from God. It carries no authority, no convincing power, no persuasiveness. It doesn't even seem to be particularly religious. Uh, it seems to read more kind of as 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 a, a history book, really, and uh, and mm-hmm. even there, we don't find uh, the the apologetics from from Mormonism to to be in good standing because there's a lot of claims within the Book of Mormon uh, 
um, that, uh, that don't really bear out in, in uh, reality and not just the, the, um, supernatural ones, but like, uh, different types of animals being over in America's before the Europeans, uh, there's no evidence of uh, certain things like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the, the, the lost tribes of Israel uh, coming over, uh, that's another, that's another big one lost in America. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus goes up in the clouds and he says, I'll return. But, but first I got to make a pit stop over in the Americas and reveal our, myself to, to the native Americans. Some are, are a different skin color and some are, are, are godly white. And so that, that's a, that's a, a portion of Mormon history that, uh, that God has changed. And, uh, and, um, along with polygamy, uh, they do that for, uh, for, uh, uh PR purposes. So there are obvious contradictions between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. According to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, we are to test all for the revelation that is given by God according to previous revelation because God doesn't contradict himself. That's our internal critique. That's something that even the Mormons should believe as well. If he gives further revelation, he isn't going to change his mind. If further revelation uh, contradicts previous revelation, then you know it's bogus. Right. And so, you know, the Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 18 say that we are to test, uh, you know, uh, further revelation. If it is not like the previous revelation, then we know that there is a problem. Right? And so, according to the teaching of the Mormons, Watson um, tells us, there is a plurality of gods. Each of these gods has its own universe. So the question is, does the Bible teach this? And clearly it doesn't. So when the Mormon starts pressing you, he tells us, point out those contradictions. Somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. And obviously, he says, the Book of Mormon and other official Mormon teachings contradict the Bible, and thus they are wrong. According to uh, the principles that he suggested from, from Deuteronomy 13 and 18, which says that if something has changed in terms of who God is and that sort of thing, then you know that that's the wrong one when you compare it to the scriptures. Right. And so, uh, you know, we can look at, uh, you know, Isaiah, where God is declaring himself to be the, the one true God, that he looks to the right of him, to the left of him. He sees no other God from eternity to eternity, from, from di- directions, both east and west, uh, according to God. Um, he sees no other. He knows of no other. And God being all-knowing, then uh, he might know this. But it's only when uh, you have this this further revelation in in Mormonism and things like uh, uh, getting married in in the uh, in, in in a proper ceremony using uh, Freemason type uh, uh, handshakes and symbols. Uh, uh, that's the only way that you can become caught up to the. The third tier of the third heaven, and so um, uh, the, the, there's really no one that goes to hell, uh, including Hitler and all the the bad people. And e- even if you're a, a bad Mormon, you get to rule over the demons in hell. Like those are the only people that go to hell. So, so there's this kind of three tiered structure to heaven. All right. So now we're going to move on into the unknown language of reformed Egyptian. Uh, This was uh, a big (laughs) one. Again, uh, like the seer stone, uh, it's, you know, denied. Oh, we we don't have it. We lost it. And then, oh, look, uh, we do have it. It's always been in the archives and now we can study it. And so here's here's what uh, Joseph Smith has done. Uh, You know, what are the languages of the Book of Mormon? That's the question. Of course, we're dealing with them based on what they themselves say. 
the language of the Book of Mormon are such that they could not be translated without an additional miracle. In fact, in the Book of um, Mormon 9, 32 and 34, uh, Mormons admit that Reformed Egyptian is not a known human language. N none other people knoweth our language is what it's claimed. So this is an unknown language, Reformed Egyptian. Nobody knows it, right? Now, uh, so Martin Harris wanted to know if the golden plates were real, right? So he got, you know, um, Joseph Smith said, hey, I got these things. The angel revealed them to me. So Martin Harris wanted to know if they're real. And uh, the answer given to him was that the plates were in Reformed Egyptian, this unknown language. So sometime between that story, Bonson tells us, and the writing of uh, 9, you know, 32 and 34, uh, obviously Joseph Smith, he says, ran into some problems, not the least of which is that Reformed Egyptian doesn't exist as a language, right? right. But hey, no problem, right? We'll just get it translated. <laughs> so when Martin Harris had questions about whether these plates were bogus or not, they allegedly went to New York City and had a professor of linguistics confirm their translation. But now we read that none other people knoweth our language, right? 932 and so forth. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, then how did this professor uh, confirm their translation, right? What, uh, you know, is he, you know, what, what's going on here? Nobody knows this language, right? It's a reformed Egyptian, but you want to make sure that you get it right. And so you take it to a professor <laughs> and he says, oh, yeah, you got it right. But nobody knows the language. Right. There's a serious problem there, right, is right. what he's trying to point out here. So, so th there's where it leads into our contradiction. Uh, plus, uh, you know, you have these rediscovered uh, um uh, pretty much Book of the Dead Egyptians that uh, were procured by uh, Smith and others. And, uh, and you know, the translation is here's, you know, 40 words for every one Egyptian word. So it's not even if, if you're trying to fake it, it's not even doing a, a good job uh, with it. But uh, but uh, here we we have a claim that no one knows it except for, uh, uh, you know, the, the the people in the in the in the lofty towers. Take it to them and then <laughs> you'll find out that that it's true even though no one knows it. Okay. So, okay. So on top of all that, they can't keep the story straight. If a religion claims that the Bible is the word of God and you want to add something to it, your apologetic is straightforward. You're going to show that the Bible does not support their further revelation, but rather conflicts with it. They can't have it both ways. The Mormon answer to that apology is say, well, you don't have the Bible. We do. We have a inspired translation and you don't. In fact, we have it better because we can take it to a guy and say, is this what it should be? And they can say, yep, uh, you know, here's here's our head prophet. And he says it's correct. And look, we don't have to do uh, anything further. Uh, I've still got my burning in my bosom. It's kind of like going to a pope, except the pope is, uh, you know, the, the, the magisterium hasn't uh, uh, uh uh, systematically went down except for like three verses uh, for uh, Roman Catholics to say this, this is what you have to believe about uh, these Bible verses, even though the church has allegedly been around for 2000 years. So so even uh, the, the problem isn't only uh, selective to, to Mormons. OK, so uh, you, you don't uh, silly Christian, you don't have the Bible. We do. We have the inspired translation. You don't. Okay, so what you're going to say is it comes down to your believing a story about a man who had plates that no one else was allowed to see and who translated a language and no other human on earth knows, allegedly, in a, an inspired way. Right. 
And so uh, he says, you know, really it comes down to the word of Joseph Smith against all the public evidence that we have for the manuscript integrity of the scriptures and translations and so forth. And what this means is that it comes down to a choice between wanting to believe a story somebody uh, told you and, uh, and what can be publicly verified. If you choose to believe what anybody tells you, he says that's simply being arbitrary, right, if you believe the story. And so he says, we've talked about these major mistakes in philosophy, arbitrariness and inconsistency. And now we've seen that Mormonism is rather guilty of both. Right. Right. And we see scriptures, scriptures being written down uh, as stories are being told in here for people that that aren't uh, that aren't witness to it. But the the people who have witnessed to it are available at the time the, you know, here's 500 people that you can go talk to. If, if you, if you doubt any of these things, here are the apostles that you can um, uh, learn the stories from here. Here's, you know, from, from our knowing of the, the uh, translation um, kind of uh, impact that the scriptures had, we can be confident that we have what was in the original autographs. And we've covered um, all that in the past before, uh, but we don't have this with, with um with mormonism it's it's kind of the the uthmanic uh, um uh revision for for uh, uh the quran here you have just it's a single point uh, a, a a single uh direct means of of uh translation of interpretation uh you know it, even if if uh, anybody who knows about translation um, they have to make choices as to to what it is because there are Hebrew words that or or German words or Russian words where you, you'll come into to contact with something and you have to say oh it's something like uh, it's it's when you get really uh, angry when you're when you're hungry it's it's that type of, of feeling word but we don't have a word for it we we'll call it hangry and and in, in uh, today's English but but we don't have like a direct one-to-one translation in translations you have to m- m- kind of make those uh, those interpretive um, uh, declarations. And so here you have to have a, a single point that, that no one else can, can check. Right. And so here he quotes uh, uh, actually from the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, he says, uh, compare what we know about the origin of the Book of Mormon from the testimony of one man uh, to what the Bible says about the investigative methodology that Luke used through the Holy Spirit to write his Gospel. Luke says, many have undertaken the draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke mentions multiple eyewitnesses, and of course in Acts he mentions many convincing proofs in his recounting of the history of Jesus' ministry and the church up through Paul's imprisonment. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of investigation that we want, not some man, you know, one person who tells you a story. Right. That's the point he's getting. All right? Right. And to close this out, um, you know, it's it's easy to, to make fun of uh, any religion and, you know, um, it, we, we've, we've got uh, musicals and cartoons uh, against Mormons, uh, but really to, to take a look at uh, a, a good comparative uh, of, of their doctrine versus Christian doctrine. Um, I always go through uh, James R. White's uh, is the Mormon my brother. 
And uh, there's mm-hmm. all my little notes of different things, uh, <laughs> humility, uh, Christian orthodoxy, there's prophecy. Uh, so I've, I've marked this up uh, really well. And this just takes just the doctrine. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't pull any cheap shots, but uh, um, it, it, it provides an honest take of from their sources, uh, what's directly said. So it's not uh, characterized. Uh, it, it's properly understood in their context. And um, uh, it, it shows the delineation uh, between the two that that uh, that. Uh, you know, essentially, uh, Mormons aren't aren't Christians, and they they can't be. Uh, polytheism being one of the the, the biggest things. Um, uh, being anti-trinitarian uh, is is also in there as well. Um, but yeah, uh, we also have Islam, and so um, uh, Islam then doesn't fall into polytheism. In fact, they're uh, strictly Unitarian. There's there's no Trinity. There's just a single God Allah, and it's uh, uh, here's uh, what uh, Bonson says about this, is that maybe someone can do better with further revelation. Let's look at Islam. While Mormonism is an example of polytheistic biblical counterfeit, Islam is a Unitarian biblical counterfeit. Muslims reject the Trinity. They believe the doctrine of the Trinity is idolatrous. Um, uh, what uh, the original author of the Quran uh, thought of the Trinity is uh, um, skeptical at best. Um, uh, it, it appears that um, um, they think that Mary is a part of the Trinity, um, but uh, but it, it uh, uh, it's neither here nor there. We uh, talk to any uh, um, Muslim today about the Trinity, and they would they would uh, view it as as idolatrous. So there's only one God who is uh, the one person. His name is Allah, and his messenger or prophet was Muhammad. All right, and of course, their holy book, uh, the Quran, is um, uh, what is it? God's essence, and how did it uh, come into being? It's good to investigate these questions because one of the points a Muslim apologist will make is that there are no variants in the Quran as there are in the Bible, right? right. So obviously, there are lots of translations of the Bible, and um, and so there are differences in these various translations. And Bonson tells us with the Bible, we have various manuscript traditions that have somewhat different readings. Obviously, the science of textual criticism has been developed to look at these variances and decide which is most likely the original. None of them affects any major doctrine, so they're not really all that important. But the variances do exist. But Muslims, he says, will tell you, we have no variances in the Quran and so the Quran is superior to the Bible. Right. Right. But we don't talk about the Uthmanic revision of uh, bring your bring your memories, bring your bring your uh, different uh, translations, bring them to me. Uh, we'll write one version of the Quran. We'll throw the, all the others in the fire. So there can't be a, a study like <laughs> like we have. So that's right. that's super helpful. But they're absolutely correct. Uh, again, another James White book. What every Christian needs to know about the Quran is an excellent resource uh, on on the history of the Quran and and the textual um, um, avenues from there. Uh, we uh, supported at our church uh, a missionary, the late uh, Keith Small, uh, who did uh, an amazing uh, job of studying early Quranic uh, 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 manuscripts, and um, his work was really really good too. I've got uh, his book uh, signed behind me too, and I just always want to shout him out because. Uh, um, uh, he passed away when he was going to come talk at a church again, and um, it, it was sweet meeting him the first time. And we, I got, uh, I got like forty-five minutes uh, 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 the first time that I met with him to to just kind of pepper him with all sorts of questions. And I, I think he was shocked that uh, anyone uh, knew what his study was over here. But uh, that was a lot of fun. All right, 
So for this reason, we must remember that the Quran came from and its own textual history. Muhammad would go into a cave and sometimes in that cave, he would be caught up with religious ecstasy. Uh, he didn't know uh, how to write. And so that's one of the, the kind of proofs that uh, that uh, Muslims have is here's this unlearned man who's who's um, who's revealing this big thing. Um, and even Muhammad would say that uh, when when he met uh, with uh, an angel, he didn't know if it was an angel or a demon at the time. And so we would say, well, we probably could guess which uh, which version of, of, of that question uh, would fall. But when he would get these alleged revelations from Allah, he would cry out and they'd have to be written down. And some of them he had to remember. In fact, uh, uh, the, through the early points in uh, Muslim history, uh, there was a, a, a concern about how much was uh, broken up and remembered through different people. And then when they had their war campaigns, um, that these people could be killed and there would be portions of the Quran that could be lost. So there was a big concern about getting it written down. So at the time, uh, they didn't have to look at uh, good quality writing material. It turns out that the crown was originally made up of particles of revelation written down on bones and leaves, sometimes papyrus, though not often. One day, someone had to bring all this together and make a book out of it. And it will probably not surprise you then that the early days of the new religion, there were different translations as to what Muhammad actually said. And again, uh, the, the, until the Uthmanic rev revision, this is what brought uh, um, uh, uh, Arabic into kind of a, a one pronunciation like we saw uh, with Germany, with uh, Martin Luther's translation. We saw um, King James uh, version of the Bible. It, 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 it funneled how people pronounced and spelled uh, different words because kind of codified the language. Yeah. yeah. And it is really interesting and, and uh, you know, not to knock the history of, of humanity here, but, uh, but that is a, a pretty impressive uh, movement when uh, so many people speak all these different dialects uh, that, you know, can still be around and still influence uh, um, uh, different speaking engagements. Uh, but uh, really uh, uh, an important book like the Quran or the Bible um, um, kind of solidifies, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the language uh, for the, the people in the time and place that, uh, you know, that nationalism wasn't a thing because nation was too big for people. So you really had yeah. like cities and, and, and different uh, uh, little epics uh, uh, in, in countries uh, that we uh, don't think about today. So. And so uh, Bonson picks up on this and makes the same point, actually, that, that you've been making here. You know, they brought all this together. They made one book out of it. He says that proved to be embarrassing. You know, getting rid of all the rest of the books proved to be embarrassing to the Muslims. And so in the third uh, caliph, this is when this happened, uh, of this new religious and social movement, all the variant translations were called in on pain of death. And one translation was chosen as the original and the rest were destroyed. And so this is how the Muslim performed the miracle of having no variant readings. <laughs> right. He tells us, right? <laughs> right. Okay. So on top of that, Islam's five major doctrines, they have five major doctrines of Islam. First, Allah is the one true God. Second, Allah has sent many prophets to guide men. And Muhammad is the last of these great, uh, and, and, and he's the greatest of these prophets. Third and, uh, and the uh, is uh, the, the four inspired books, the Pentateuch, which is the Law of Moses, the Psalms, the Gospel of Jesus, and the Quran. The Quran is the most important. The, all the other ones, the the Injil and the the Pentateuch, um, you know, they have their special place. Place, but uh, we'll see that uh, this means that the Quran itself recognizes the Pentateuch, Psalms, and the the Injil, the Gospels, as previous revelations. But there seems to be an issue uh, when you refer back to the other things. 
Right. And so Boxer says if a Muslim says that the Quran follows a long line of revelation from Allah, including portions of the Bible that he claims are inspired, your inner internal critique then can start there. Let's go on to these parts of the Bible and compare them to the Quran, he suggests, right? And so the Quran contains several interesting teachings, Bonson tells us, not the least of which is that Jesus did not die on the cross. Judas was substituted for him, according to the Quran. It says that the mother of Jesus was Miriam, the sister of Moses. And of course, a, a confusion that probably rose because their names sound alike. Miriam, Mary, right? And the Quran was based on an original, uh, uh, an oral tradition. And so to this day, this is still, Bonson tells us, an embarrassment to scholars of the Quran. The best answer that he has heard is that Mary was a woman like Mary. That's what they meant to say, right? And so that's why these two are uh, conflated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, we, we see, um, uh, you know, a different uh, you know, early stories of Jesus that came came out came out of the kind of a Gnostic gospel period. Uh, and again, you have to remember this is 600 years after uh, you know Jesus is around, and we're supposed to trust a man who 600 years after the events took place is is telling us all these things. So you know, Jesus has uh, you know little, he's making little clay birds and he brings them to life, or uh, he gets angry at at a, a small child and kills him and raises him up again. So uh, you know, all, all these things come from. Uh, probably uh, Muhammad being on uh, these trade routes and and kind of getting little snippets of things. And so, you know, what's orthodox out there? What what is the Trinity? Oh, the Trinity is God, Jesus, and and Mary. Well, okay, you know, I I'm hearing these other people talk about the Trinity. That's that's three. Uh, and so uh, we obviously can't believe that. Um, and so you you have these. Well, three different... is three though, right? <laughs> right, three is three. <laughs> At least here, yes. And so, you know, <laughs> doesn't you, matter which three, it's three. <laughs> right. So, so you, you, you have, you, you, you have only 40 Arabic words describing anything about Jesus. And so to, to say, oh, Jesus is a, a really important person. Uh, you know, it really does undercut when, when the majority of, of Muslim knowledge um, that, that is outside the Injil is just comes down to, to 40 Arabic words. So there's just something, a little, little, little tidbit of information in there. Okay. So most importantly, though, there is a doctrinal conflict between the teachings of Moses and David and Jesus and what Muhammad said. Now, if the teachings of Moses is inspired and if Deuteronomy 13, 18, again, uh, that you are uh, to have future revelation must be judged according to previous revelation. And if the alleged future revelation in the Quran conflicts with the previous revelation of Moses, which one has to go by their own logic? Which must go is the Quran. You know, so it's this. Oh, again, after everything's been been uh, well translated. Well, don't you believe that the Injil is the word of God? Well, yes, but it's been corrupted over time. Well, but not the Quran. No, 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 not the Quran. But the Injil was, even though it also was the word of God. Yes. And so there's a conflict there that's not explained right. other than just, well, it says things that we don't like. You know, John one uh, is, is just terrible for because it, it, you know, it describes Jesus as God. And we don't want that. All right, so he moves then uh, to the third one, right, to the third category of biblical counterfeit religions, and these he calls pseudo-messianic, right? Jesus prophesied during his ministry that there would be false uh, prophets and false messiahs and false Christs, and so there's a long history of false uh, messianic claims uh, and claimants, uh, Monson tells us. 
seems that nearly every generation, there's at least one or two that pop up. For example, as recent as the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 90s, Sun Young Moon claimed to be the third Messiah. So there it is, right? Jesus supposedly failed in his task. And so Moon had to come to do the work that Jesus failed to accomplish and create a new celestial family. Right. And so we talked about this is why, uh, you know, if, if you're looking back in the day on, on Moon's things, how many weddings or, or um, marriage ceremonies uh, are, are taking place in, in the videos that, uh, that you might see if you looked into that. So Moon taught that mankind fell spiritually when Eve had sexual intercourse with Lucifer. And I, I get this question all the time in, 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 uh, in the ministries that I work for is, well, you know, we, we know the fruit wasn't actually fruit. It, it was uh, sexual intercourse with Lucifer. I'm just like, this is bizarre. Where is this coming from? Well, here's one of the sources. Yeah. And so, so Eve, Eve had intercourse with, with Lucifer. Mankind fell physically when Eve later had. No, spiritually. So spiritually, oh, yeah. they fell, right? right. right. With, uh, with the intercourse of liter- with Lucifer. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, and then uh, uh, Moon instructed his disciples that Jesus uh, prematurely died, having only provided for man's spiritual salvation. According to Moon, Jesus failed to provide physical salvation for mankind by raising a family who would inherit his sinless nature. And right, so what, Dan so, Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we have here is Moon says that uh, mankind died spiritually because of sexual intercourse with Luther, or Luce, Lucifer rather. Sorry, Luther. Uh, <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> and mankind died physically when he later had sexual intercourse with Adam. Right. So sex is the key to the death of humanity, right? Either spiritually with, with Lucifer or physically with uh, with Adam. And so, you know, even though they're made for this, it's odd that he would have a physical death as a result of sexual intercourse with with Adam. But, you know, that's that's what he held to. It's, it's the uh, transitive property, you know, A plus B equals <laughs> B plus A. So there you go. Right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but unfortunately Jesus died before he could procure such a family. Now it's up to moon to physically save mankind. Right. So Jesus took care of the spiritual side. Moon is going to take care of the physical uh, sin that was created with sex with that. Right. And so Watson tells us when witnessing to Moon's followers, it should be pointed out that the Bible teaches that the fall of mankind was due not to sex, right, but to disobedience of a clear command of God. It had nothing to do with sex. The scriptures teach that Jesus did, in fact, not fail. Right. And he accomplished salvation completely for mankind. And so they got it wrong. That's what he suggested. Right. Just how, uh, you know, if if it's Mormons, you have to accept that uh, for uh, some 1800 years, the 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 God has just uh, had failed the church. And, and you know, there, there's no re- redemption up until the point of Joseph Smith uh, with uh, Islam. You have 600 years before Muhammad comes on the scene. And now you have what? Uh, uh, One thousand nine hundred and eighty years up until moon comes to, <laughs> to, to finally complete it. You know, the, there, there's a there's a lot of space in between there. So. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we were just waiting for all these people to, to come about. All right. So uh, when witnessing to Moon's followers, it should be pointed out that the Bible teaches that the fall of mankind was due to disobedience of clear command of God. It had nothing to do with sex. 
and the scripture that teaches that Jesus did not fail. So that's that's uh, what we talked about here. But here too, we can ask if uh, the same questions we've been asking of other worldviews, you'll find uh, that this sort of religion crumbles as well as we compare its doctrines with the word of God. Again, here's here's our uh, in, internal critique of of the others is, okay, you believe the Bible in, in some in some capacity. Let's let's look to it and see if if you can uh, um, uh, objectively meet its standards and and not be inconsistent um, or arbitrary. So those again, those are our two um, kind of uh, points. If one falls, then the, the whole system falls. So what standard did Moon use to establish his credentials as the Messiah? Well, it's himself. Easy. It's just him. That's all he has to do. So this demonstrates his messianic claim to be arbitrary. What religion did he claim to represent? The Christian religion. Such a declaration was inconsistent and contradictory when compared with the testimony of Scripture. Anyone claiming to be the Messiah, as described in Scripture, will be arbitrary, inconsistent, and contradictory, since the Bible is clear that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies and prophecies uh, that's described. Uh, you know, th there's no talk about, well, hopefully someday some Messiah will come where he'll reunite uh, in, in uh, holy matrimony and save us from our, our uh, wretched uh, physical death. There, there's, there's no talk about that in scripture. It's all about how Jesus accomplished it. You know, the, uh, for, for once uh, and uh, final sacrifice, Jesus now is able to sit uh, in, the, in the temple and offer a perpetual sacrifice uh, for us. Uh, uh, you know, on our behalf, and uh, it was done once and for all. And so, there, there's no sign of failure. And so, uh, you know, how about how about how how does Moon then attribute the passages about uh, false messiahs coming in? Is he saying then that well, there there are all these other false messiahs, but trust me, I'm the I'm the real third messiah. So, how, how does you know how does he deal with these these passages? And sadly, this is where the book ends because uh, you know th this is uh, this is Greg Bonson's uh, different um, um, talks uh, about um, uh, um, you know uh, that that are taken by uh, Gary Demar and and uh, the American um, American Vision folks. Uh, so we appreciate it. Uh, I just do want to bring up one. If you're looking to get more into um, kind of different lookings at different religions in different areas, uh, Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults uh, is always a, a great resource for. The history of the religion and then uh, getting into the, the doctrine. So it's it's kind of a good one stop shop. Then you can pick up all the other books that uh, that we offered to to um, to kind of dig deeper into the, the doctrine point. But again, uh, this, this is just what uh, what is described for for presuppositionalism. Uh, you know, we, we have a basis for 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 knowledge and we're uh, providing an internal critique that uh, it, uh for every and any and every worldview that you can encounter so the questions that you can ask uh uh for for anybody are kind of down that path and you can then point out well it seems like you're saying this but it doesn't that contradict what we see here or uh, how do you account for these things and so if there's no accounting for it uh, you know, you can point out the arbitrariness or the inconsistency within the worldview. And then the always important is not just to leave them there broken and and questioning, uh, you know, nihilism, but it's to bring the gospel. And so that that's the you know, that's the second pillar that uh, that we always want to bring up. And if anything, so, you know, you can always um, present them with that, because, again, uh, it's it's God's word that uh, he uses as the means by which uh, to, to bring about salvation. And so um, this this. Uh, technique uh it's it's not to trick people but it's to get them thinking about about it and uh, um 
pray that uh, God uses it uh, to bring um, others to himself and we can have confidence because we can look at those other um, other worldviews and we can find them lacking. And then we can be confident uh, in ours by then uh, doing an internal critique on ours. And if there's something that's failing, we uh, should question um, you know, our, our, our process, uh, all the way back to the ultimate standard and see if there's a better, um, 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 ultimate standard than God's word. And, um, for Christians, uh, the answer is no. And so that should be our ultimate guiding point. So, right. So, so the book is against all opposition, defending the Christian worldview by Greg Bonson. And, uh, he has worked us through these various, uh, uh aspects of his version of, uh, presuppositional apologetics right okay so, so we can, we need to come up with a new book here we, and we so do. that's what we yeah yeah uh and so uh so we're, we're only one week ahead of everybody else so uh you know this the, the we're, <laughs> we're filming this very soon to when i need to edit it uh so um i'll uh, produce a trailer for our next book that will give us uh, a kind of uh, some breathing room time uh that we believe that we've we've got it we've got our next book uh um and uh we'll uh put out a trailer so that way it gives you time to to pick up the book uh, as well. And so, um, uh, um, you can follow us along for our next book as we, uh, uh, come to understand more about God's world and our place in it. So we'll see you in the next book. <laughs> see you next time.